there's a broker I used to work with. He owned the second brokerage that I worked for, and he was a top ten broker for like twelve years. He was doing a hundred million, you know, when mortgages were much yeah. more in value. One thing he said to me is, "If someone put a gun to your head, could you find a new mortgage today? Find a new mortgage every day." I'd refinance my house. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so I can. Like, I am like, refinancing my house again. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Welcome to LMB Rookie Mortgage Broker Podcast. Every Friday, I talk to a rookie who's making waves in the mortgage industry to find out what they're doing to succeed in today's ultra-competitive market. And today, I have Nick Cox. He got his mortgage license back in October 2020, and he's from Australia, as you'll find out pretty quickly from his accent, that he had a mortgage company there, tried to run it from Canada, decided to sell it, and then went off and did a couple different things, and then in October of 2020, got his mortgage broker license. In his first 12 months as a mortgage broker, he funded 15 million in mortgages, and 50% of those, so seven and a half million, actually came from an extremely established BNI chapter that had 18 brokers competing for a spot, and he was brand newly licensed and he got the spot. And he literally gives you a blueprint on how to do this. So if you're listening to this going, Scott, that sounds great, but that won't happen for me. I will tell you that if you do what Nick did to get into this, you will absolutely increase your chances of getting that spot significantly. Plus, the other thing is I would say, when it comes to building a new mortgage business, you know, referral partners, realtors, financial planners, your network is important, but a BNI type group can be very, very useful. And if there isn't one in your area or one available, just start one. I know that it might be a bit of work, but honestly, outside of like, you know, getting realtors to refer you, that's probably one of the best ideas you can use as a new agent. He also shares a couple examples of how he lost files and what he learned from losing them. And I like asking this question because then hopefully you guys can learn from these mistakes and then not, you know, lose a file the same way. Great conversation. Love this guy. He's got tons of energy and just amazing dude. Check out this conversation with Nick. Before we jump into this episode, I want to give a shout out to my title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection submission platform that is incredibly easy to use, easy for borrowers and also easy for brokers. It's got some cool features like smart docs. So as the client's filling out the application, it's already figuring out exactly what documents that you need. It's got smart submission notes. So when you get ready to submit that to a lender, it's actually pulling key data from the application and putting in the notes. And you may think, Scott, why do you need that? It's because every lender's underwriting platform is different. Finding the information in the application is always like all over the place. And so this way you have one place for your notes, which is awesome. It's connected to Lender Spotlight, which means you can search rates and guidelines. And it's just incredibly easy. Our brokers absolutely love it. And the best part is there's no subscription fee. Best next step would be to go to finmo.ca and book a free strategy session and they'll show you how this can help you save tons of time. Check it out. In my Ask the Expert segment, I talked to Reuven from Deeded about scaling your business. And so Reuven has a company called Deeded.ca and we just dive into you know lessons learned from scaling. It's an awesome conversation. Check this out. Hey Nick, welcome to the show. Hey Scott, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, we've been trying to connect with you for a while, so it's great. So tell me a little bit about yourself and where you're from. All right, so you can probably tell with the accent, I'm from Australia. I moved to Canada like, I want to say six and a half years ago. Met my wife in Bali and it was kind of a whirlwind romance. We met, got engaged after three weeks. At the time, I had just started my mortgage brokerage in Australia and I uh, made the decision to move to Canada pretty shortly thereafter. So I've been here for six and a half years I grew up playing hockey and skiing. So for me, Canada was always kind of the promised land. Yeah. And yeah, love it here in BC. 
we have a dog and we just welcomed our son into the world a couple of weeks ago. Oh, congratulations, man, on the Thank son you. at school. And so got engaged three weeks and you had a mortgage biz. So you were running an Australian mortgage business from Canada. What happened with that? So I'd been in the mortgage industry for about three and a half years when I decided it was time for me to go out on my own and start my own business. Wasn't planning to meet my future wife a few weeks later. So I continued to build my mortgage brokerage business in Australia whilst having a long distance relationship. I actually brought on three brokers to work with me. The intention was to kind of mentor them from afar. So I moved to Canada and continued to run the brokerage from Vancouver and sort of mentor the three guys. Two of them fell off fairly quickly and I think it was just shy of a year into it, I decided that, you know, splitting myself between Australia and Canada was too much and I ended up selling the brokerage to the broker who worked for me. The cool thing is it's still actually running six years on. They've actually got a team now and the reason I was able to sell the brokerage, some of the listeners might know this, is that in Australia you get a trail income attached with all the loans you run and there's no loan term. The loan and the amortisation is the same. Yeah. Um, so you can generally sell your book of business for two times the recurring revenue. Yeah, that's great. Two times the annual recurring revenue? Yeah, the recurring revenue from the trail book. So the trail, right. you get less of an upfront, but the trail you'd get anywhere from sort of 15 basis points to 30 basis points per year broken into monthly installments. So as you build your book, it's kind of like a financial planner that has a trail book from funds under management. As you close more mortgages, you add to your trail and you can actually earn pretty sizable money just from the trail book. Right. I interviewed a guy from New Zealand recently, David Chamberlain. I was just fascinated. I'm like, how does it work? For me, it was just like a deep dive in the New Zealand. And I think New Zealand's very similar to Australia mortgage market. So you can go check that one out. So sold that, but you didn't immediately jump into being a Canadian mortgage broker, right? So you tried some other yeah. stuff. When did you become a Canadian mortgage broker? October of 2010. I tried a few different things. And then 2020, I started, you mean? You know, Yes, 2020, October 2010, 2020. I'm like, so, well, you're on the rookie show, man. You would be like, I've been in this for 12 years. I'm like, no, 2020, right? Yeah, year and a half ago. I tried a few different things and it wasn't working out. And I just, I kind of realized, I'm like, what am I doing? I was a good broker. I really enjoyed it. So yeah, was introduced to a couple of really good brokers and went The rest is history. And yeah. okay, so then in that first year, so if you don't mind me asking, how did you do, you know, in 2021 would be basically your first year? I set myself a target of like, if I can get 10 million in volume in my first 12 months starting from scratch, I'm going to be really happy. Mm -hmm. I ended up with 15.3 million and 29 deals closed, which, you know, it was a very good market last year. So that helped, but it was a lot better start than I was anticipating for my first 12 months. Right. And so one of the things I know about your story a little bit is your success with BNI. And so maybe before we talk about kind of how you managed to get into a very established BNI network as a brand new broker, you had a, some mortgage experience, but it's from another country. It was several years dormant, if you will, and you were able to finagle your way into a very. So, how has BNI helped your like of that fifteen million? How much of it came from BNI? It was basically pretty much exactly half. So, of the twenty nine deals, fifteen of those were BNI originated, and it represented actually funnily enough almost exactly half the volume. Um, right. A lot of that, the really supportive realtor in the chapter, he and his team have sent me a bunch of business. And then a lot of work for directly for people in the chapter and referrals. Um, right. So I think a good really a business networking group can be a huge benefit to somebody if you're new. So, all right. The BNI chapter was not a new chapter, right? Tell me about what happened there. Yeah. So there's, you know, dozens of chapters across British Columbia. This chapter has been around for just on 20 years. And so the previous broker had been there for a while and decided to move on. Now there are certain seats in the BNI chapter that are very competitive when the seats open up, and that's realtor, financial advisor, life insurance advisor. 
and mortgage broker. The two brokers I've aligned with, one of them gave me the heads up to like, hey, I've heard about this seed opening in BNI Marine site. I knew that chapter, like they've got generally around 50 members in the chapter, which is more than double the average kind of BNI size. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh man, if I can get that spot, I'd be sorted because it's one of the biggest and most long-standing chapters in BC. I've been a member of BNI both in Canada for different professions, and I used to sub for brokers that were part of my brokerage in Australia. So I was very familiar with the model and how to stack the deck in my favor when it comes to, you know, competing for the seat. How many people were competing for that broker seat? There was 18 brokers that had come through. I came in the last meeting before they closed applications. There were six brokers in that meeting. Only enough, it lined up with my first day with the new brokers as an associate slash broker was the day of this BNI meeting. So I had them show up with me. The three of us showed up. I looked at the other six brokers and they were all good thought to myself like what can I do I put my application and all more experience than you likely right oh yeah 100% I had zero experience like not a single day I didn't let them know that did you have a single mortgage in Canada funded at that time no no it was my first day on the job oh okay so first day license (laughs) no no I've been been licensed but I'd started with this brokerage so I was like my first day and so I submitted my application and I knew they were going to take a few weeks to decide there's an application process so the next week I thought there are two things that have been in our chapter really once, and that's can you bring referrals and can you bring visitors? So I showed up the next week and I brought five visitors. None of the other brokers brought a single person, and I also brought referrals to share at the end of the meeting. I knew that they were going to decide after the following week's meeting. So then I thought to myself, how can I bring this home? A realtor had told me how he won a seat out in Richmond. He was a new realtor, less than a year experience, but he beat out over 100 realtors that had come through for this seat over the time that they were advertising for it. And he just called everyone in his network and brought as many people to the chapter meeting as possible. He wanted to get them into a point where how can they choose anyone but you? He's bringing that many people to the meeting. So I must have spent maybe 20 hours that week making phone calls. I even cold called insurance advisors. I'm just like, I'm going to do anything I can to get this seat because it's probably worth five to $20 million a year if you get into the seat, into the chapter. So it was worth digging in. Anyway, I brought 16 visitors the following week. And I won bam, the seat. You got it. Did, yeah. did the other people catch on to what you were doing? The other? Yeah, they did. A few of the okay. brokers bought like a couple of people each. But then there's a section where the visitors say like their name and who invited them. So all they were saying was invited by Nick Cox, invited by Nick Cox. And someone commented that I was trying to start my own BNI chapter. So I wanted to get the membership committee to the point where they thought, how can we choose anyone but Nick? He brings 16 people to a single meeting. And it worked. Right. And you ended up doing seven and a half million. So if you think about, you know, gross commission, depending on your splits, but 50 to $75,000 opportunity every year now, like plus your people. Ideally, it should grow, right? Yeah. Yeah. But year one. So if you guys are listening to this, I mean, literally, you just gave people a blueprint for how to successfully compete in a BNI. But what you've done is you really thought about, you know, I always talk about this radio station, WIFM, what's in it for me. You thought about the committee people that were going to say yes what do they want they want referrals they want guests you just bring value bring value and it was a layup for you in the end because they're probably like how could we say no to a guy who's literally brought 21 people there's probably people in that group that haven't brought 21 people in two years yeah no i know that they haven't exactly right so two things if you're thinking of going to join a bnr chapter and you're competing for the seat call your database call your network bring as many visitors as you can and think about who in the chapter you can refer business to either using yourself or refer them to people that might need their services. And if you're showing that kind of buy-in from day one, you know, you're stacking the odds in your favor for sure. Right. Okay. So I'm going to back up a bit and ask some of the questions. So did you start full-time as a mortgage broker, part-time? 
what were you doing right before you became a mortgage broker? What was the career? In, in Australia or in Canada? In Canada. In Canada? <laughs> I had a financial planning business that was focused on uh, an alternative to the registered education savings plan. I called it Child Life Financial, and the idea was using dividend paying whole life insurance as a long term tax efficient way to help create a financial system for kids and grandkids. Right. I'd started working for Freedom 55, and then I just I caught wind of whole life insurance works and this thing called the infinite banking system and the bank on yourself policy and how you can use these insurance policies long term. And I thought there was a market there for focusing on young kids. Right. But I went to niche. After 12 months of trying to do that, I realized this is never going to work. Right. Did you make any money doing it? Yeah. I sold like a dozen kid policies over those 12 months. It's really hard to get kids to sign contracts. Eh? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's the you know, parents here, and kid. grandparents. What I, know, what I found was though, that I'd get the parents interested or the grandparents interested, but then what would come up is that they required a lot of other planning that they should execute on before doing something like this. And I realized I'd left the broader financial planning space before I had the skill set to be able to service those needs. So yeah, too niche too quickly. The strategy is still really solid, but I just decided I wasn't going to be able to build it the way I wanted. Yeah, and it's also there's a huge like a mortgage. You're buying a house. You just it's something you need. This is a educational challenge. You got to educate them what it is. They got to understand yeah. it and go, okay, now I want it. So that just makes it even harder to sell. I made the best slideshow and PowerPoint presentation, and the education side was way too heavy. Right. I was yeah. trying. Yeah. You really got to a... convince them why they need it and how it works and everything. Maybe yeah. not why they need it, but like. Yeah. But what's yeah, that saying? You get busy um, creating something you realize is actually not a market for it, or it's very hard to tap into a market or to create a need you think that they have, but they don't actually have. Right. You know, Thomas Edison's first invention that he tried to sell actually didn't fly at all. You know what that was? No, it was a vote no. counting machine for Congress. And so he saw them doing all these votes and it was like, he basically said, oh, I can automate that. We can create a little machine. Everybody can click a button and then we can count the votes. So he spent the time, built the machine. He brought it to them and showed it. And they're like, we don't want it. So what do you mean you don't want it? He goes, because the current system works because I can go influence your vote. You haven't cast your vote yet. I can go say, hey, look, I know you haven't voted yet on this issue. And so they didn't actually want it. So he made a vow that he would never make anything that didn't have a commercial market before he built it. Because what's the point? And so just like you're saying, you know, it's a brilliant concept, but you'd have to literally educate the entire public on what it is. And then it's probably a slow sales cycle to boot. It's not like you can sign the papers on something like that and have it done in a week. So yeah. interesting. Okay. So you get into the mortgage business, you crack this BNI thing right away. Was there any point you questioned if this was the right call for you or was it like coming home again? Exactly. That last thing you said, it felt like coming home again. The only thing I wanted to punch myself in the face on was the fact that I didn't do it as soon as I moved here. I think when I started this years ago in Australia, it felt like the right industry for me to be in and probably the only job that I ever really excelled at. When I moved here, I think I was scared of starting from scratch again. The trail commission was a big part of my business model. I hated the trail commission wasn't a part of the way the industry worked here. Yeah, my only regret is that I didn't get back into it sooner. So you wanted trail commission again, is that correct? Oh, 100%. Yeah, because you had it. And then that's why you look at the financial planning and you can get trail commissions. And I mean, there's some lenders but, that pay it, but yeah. It's not a big part of the way the model works here. But what I realized is that the trail commission is in the value that you bring and the relationships that keep bringing you new business, like through realtors and financial planners that see you as their person that they just continue to pass their clients and business to. Does that make sense? Involved, you're getting... Yeah, I agree with you. The lifetime value of a client is more than just the commission. It's their network, their friends. And sometimes like, there's a whole bunch there. So where else did the rest of your business come from? So you did like, you know, seven and a half million from B&I. Where would you say the rest of the business came from? 
like I had some quite a bit of success with a few financial planners. So I've got three financial planners now that I'm kind of their go-to mortgage guy. So I got quite a bit of business from financial planners. I really like that avenue of lead generation because I've worked in the financial planning space both here and in Australia. You can talk their language. You can, yeah. 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 And I love working with them because if I'm getting a referral from a financial advisor, these people are already paying a professional for advice and I'm the person that that professional referred them to. So I find that they're easier to work with. They're more receptive to my advice. They don't grind me on rate. I really enjoy working with financial planning clients. So besides that, yeah, it was BNI, financial planners, and the realtor in the BNI chapter specifically, and then like existing relationships with friends and family. Right. So switch gears and talk about underwriting a bit. So I always like to ask about a file that you have got when you first started out and then you lost, but now looking back, go, oh, I mishandled it. So can you think of a file that that happened? Because I always think there's a lesson for other people listening and they got to make their own mistakes. I always say there's a thousand and one ways to lose a file or kill a file. And so let's share I one. I want to give and, you two. Right? Oh, awesome. Two, we get dumped two for two, one there's, value. There's two specific ones that stand out, specifically in relation to Canada. The first one was actually a friend. I was doing a refinance away from CRBC because that would take it too long. I took them to TD. The situation, it was an easy deal, but there was, you know, my friend plus her two parents and multiple properties and TD being TD was a huge amount of paperwork. And I had to keep going back a few times and the parents got frustrated and they pulled the plug and just ended up going to CRBC because it was, you know, easier to do. Right. It was early in my piece and I wasn't familiar with how cumbersome TD can be when it comes to full, you know, condition fulfillment. So in hindsight, if I'm taking someone to TD, I make sure that I know the conditions and I'm asking for docs up front. I give the client a bit of a heads up, you know, that it might be a little bit more of a cumbersome process, but also being mindful of, you know, I knew that this person's parents were not the greatest with paperwork. So knowing what I know now, I probably would have taken to someone like Scotia that has less requirements. So just right. knowing the client, knowing their pain points and <laughs> what the condition fulfillment is going to look like on the other side of that approval. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. Okay, what was the second one? Second one, one of the business partners that I align myself with, he was really great. And I think, you know, he's always very busy. These guys do large volumes. He just passed me a deal from scratch that he got from one of his realtors. And it was a large purchase in Vancouver. The client was very affluent, like very, you know, super wealthy. I'm dealing with the guy from scratch. He bought a place for his daughter. I guess first off, I was very nervous talking to this guy. Not because I was nervous on the phone, but because he was really wealthy. So I think there's that unconscious, I'm dealing with someone who's uber successful, I felt like not a fraud, but I felt like I wasn't. They're gonna, he's going to know. He's going to be like, this yeah. person's going to see, they're going to be like, you know. So one is I was nervous on that side. And secondly, I saw this guy's bank statements. He had private wealth relationships with HSBC. I went through and got him an approval and then ended up losing it, you know, on rate to HSBC very far in the game after I've already spent a huge amount of time on the deal. Whereas now, if I've got a, you know, a multimillionaire client that has clearly relationships with CIBC or HSBC, I'm having that conversation up front. Like, is anyone else working on this? Have you approached CIBC or HSBC? What are they offering right. you? I was almost scared to have that conversation with the thought of maybe losing it. And so I lost that, you know, after getting the approval and there was a lot of paperwork for that file. But now I have that conversation very frankly, candidly and lightly, but upfront. And I've had a few files where I'll lose it on rate, but I do it much earlier in the piece and I just sort of move on to the next one. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't hurt as bad It's when you spend all the hours on it and you're like, oh my gosh, like, so that's really good actually. And everybody who's listening to this, if you're new, you've done this or you will do this. These are very common errors. Okay. So in oh. terms of sales and underwriting, which was more challenging for you to learn? 
I'd say like the sales after particularly like getting back into the industry after a while, I get the confidence of speaking with clients. An old boss said to me once, he goes, you don't have to be a 10, you just got to be a tree in a room full of twos. Uh-huh. So, um, <laughs> did Stevie D say that? <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's another broker that I was a BDN for him for a while. Definitely the underwriting. I'm only skimming the surface of underwriting. I imagine it's probably going to take me a few years and a couple of hundred files to get really confident with knowing the policies and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But I'm pretty confident without going off any questionnaire sheets or anything. When I get a client on the phone, I can take them through from A to Z. But then underwriting the file and process is probably the hardest thing for me for sure. Right. That makes sense. And so you jumped into the business, took off, you came into our 10 loans a month Academy. So for you, what was your biggest sort of takeaway or what's been the most beneficial for you? Honestly, like I'm not going to lie. I haven't implemented a lot of the stuff I've learned yet, but I was in that cohort with you and a group of three other awesome brokers. I loved your cohort. Like I think there's a few things. One, I love that I got absolute clarity over exactly what kind of business I want to build. You know, when I first started back in broking here, I had this idea that I was going to, you know, build a large brokerage again and then have a lot of brokers working for me. But I gradually started to ask, like, why? Like, how do I want to spend my day and who do I want to spend it with? And there's a section of your cohort that specifically addresses the different broking model types. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is I actually love doing one-on-one work with clients. Forget the name of it, but that one where I'm just building the business and, you know, ironically, and I'm sure that's how you got to your name, like 10 loans a month would be an ideal number that I'd like to get to. And maybe I'll change that goal down the track, but 10 loans a month with one to two assistants. So starting with fulfillment and then having maybe underwriting later on, but maximum myself and two others. Once I get to that point, you know, I'll revise if I want to go any further, but I guess the first thing was absolute clarity on what I'm trying to build. Your four slide presentation on how to present value to realtors. And I haven't changed it yet, but I want to use that for financial planners. So my wife has had a kid with our house flooded. So there's life stuff at the moment, but I can see that the clouds parting in the next few weeks. So yeah. basically the second half of this year, I'm just going to hit, like I'm just going to build as many realtors and financial planning partners as I can. Yeah, prospecting is going to be the key. I was talking to Steve D the other day, one of our coaches, and he was talking to some brokers who've been in business a long time. Some of them like, you know, did... 80, 90 million last year. And they're like, I haven't prospected in two years and I don't know what to do. And so things are going to shift. The prospectors are going to gobble up market share right now. So this is the time to like put on the prospecting hat and, you know, go. And there's going to be tons of market opportunity for people that want to go out and grow. But if you sit back and wait, you're probably going to be in trouble. Yeah. You know, especially for the people that are experienced. Okay. So let me ask some rapid fire questions. You can answer these shorter answers. So what's one thing people can't find about you from Google? I'm actually a certified teacher of a meditation technique called Transcendental Meditation. It was brought to the West back in like the 50s by a guy by the name of Bahashi in India. Yeah, that's one of the things that I did when I moved to Canada was learn how to teach that. I spent like six so, okay, months Okay, what's learning. one thing people don't know about Transcendental? Say it properly, Scott. Transcendental Transcend- Meditation. What is it called? Meditation. TM. You know, it's it's mantra-based meditation. You sit quietly with your eyes closed for 20 minutes twice a day, and it's a combination of the quality of the sound of the mantra and the application of its use that allows the mind to naturally settle. If you Google it, like Hugh Jackman and Ray Dalio and Jerry Seinfeld, like there's a bunch of all those sort of famous people that get right into it. Ray Dalio actually says he credits TM more than anything else for whatever success he's had. I know that when I started doing it... Well, if Wolverine uses it, it's good enough for me, man. Like... (laughs) Tim Ferriss just released a podcast where he interviews Hugh Jackman and they actually talk about it because Tim Ferriss does it as well. So they have a good chat about it. I can look that up. Okay, so what's um, one movie everybody should watch at least once? Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. I like Guy Ritchie. Do you like Guy Ritchie? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen The Gentleman? You must have. Yeah. Have you seen, what's the next most recent one? 
Wrath of Man. Is that him as well? Oh yeah. Wrath of Man with Jason Statham. Statham. Yeah, I, think, I think Lockstock was like his first movie when I were that's the first movie he was maybe featured in. But yeah, Lockstock for sure. But, but, in Las Vegas yeah, is awesome, but yeah, what's it called? The Wrath of Man is actually Guy Ritchie as well. I rewatched that recently. It's a good movie for sure. Yeah, I love Guy Ritchie movies. I'll pretty much watch all of his movies because they're great. He's actually in. And you can rewatch them as many times. Like, I've rewatched Lockstock so many times, it never gets old. The one I like is in the movie The Gentleman. He's actually in it. Remember at the end when the guy's pitching him a movie script? I think it's him sitting in there and he's acting as like working at the movie studio. It's actually Guy yeah. Ritchie he's pitching to. But anyway, what are three software programs you couldn't run your business without? So I don't want to say like the general stuff, but at the moment it's like Calendly is a game changer. I love Calendly and never having to set appointments. I'm going to say like what is going to be my three core software sure. programs because I'm still getting to you. Like I've just switched to Finmo. I love it. I've got more a ways to go, but I love Phylogics, but it's so bloody finicky. Finmo, and I've done a lot of the training sessions, like I love the functionality and what you can do with it. And then when I finally learn how to use it, Blue Mortgage, because I know that like longer term as I build my business, like I need... What do you call it? Keeping the... Yeah, you hunt until you can farm. Yeah, exactly. So I know that Finmo and Blue Mortgage talk really well together. So just getting those two, that's a big goal for this year is Finmo, Calendly, Blue Mortgage and just getting those things locked down and tied in well together to process. And Finmo can talk directly to Blue Mortgage. Like they've got like web hooks and then you got Zapier, which is like another thing. So what's the best advice you received as a new mortgage broker? There's a broker I used to work with. Again, the second brokerage that I worked for, and he was a top ten broker for like twelve years. He was doing a hundred million, you know, when mortgages were much yeah. in value. One thing he said to me is, "If someone put a gun to your head, could you find a new mortgage today? Find a new mortgage every day." I'd refinance my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I can. Like, I'm, I am like, refinancing like, my house again. Yeah, it's just like find a new deal every day. Like every day, keep hustling. Right, right. But yeah, a gun is a very motivating. Forget about coaching. Let's just get a gun and you can be like, okay, we're going to motivate you. <laughs> All right. So this is the last question. So knowing what you know now, is there anything you do differently if you're starting over again tomorrow? 100%. So when I started, I went to lots of networking events, chamber of commerce. They're a waste of time in terms of moving your business forward. Focus entirely on building a call group, group of realtors, financial advisors, and the quicker you can get into a BNI group or something like a BNI group, that would be awesome. That would be my suggestion. And making sure that you're with an experienced team that can answer questions. Right. You got to have support for sure. Yeah. Awesome, man. So where yeah. can people find you online? My website, enlightenedmortgages.com. I don't have a Facebook page. Like I'm on LinkedIn. They can connect with me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. Nick, great chat with you. Thanks, Scott. Hey, thanks again for listening to this conversation I had with Nick. And if you're like, man, that sounds awesome. I want to learn some of the stuff that Nick learned and Nick talked about being in my cohort. So I used to teach what he, what Nick is referring to in my 10 loans a month Academy, but I now only teach it through our rookie to rockstar program because I want to make sure that we provide more than just sales training, that we've got conversion training and funding training, underwriting training. So go check out rookie to rockstar.ca. We can show you how to become a rockstar like Nick. And in this upcoming segment, I talked to Ruben about scaling up your business. Hey, Ruben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Scott, thanks uh, for having me again. So, hey, we got a topic today we're going to chat about, which is scaling up. You're scaling up your business. I'm scaling up mine. And before we turn the recorder, we're like, hey, let's talk about that today. And there's a lot of mortgage brokers who are listening who are trying to figure out how to scale their business. And so I think there'll be some good overlap. And you've scaled your business just a crazy amount in the short time that you guys have been around. What are some of the things that you think about or what are the challenges that you're running into? And then how do you solve them? 
Yeah. So I think when it comes to scaling, obviously we're in a people business and people are first, foremost, our first, second, and third priority. And what that means is a couple of things, sort of having the right people that fit the organization, what we're trying to build, having the right people that are well aligned with our overall mission and vision. We're out there to essentially set a new standard of service in the industry. And obviously anybody that's joining our team and everybody that's on our team, a big part of it has been really, how do you align them to that common vision? How do you make sure that every thing they do, every decision they make, every time they communicate with one of our users or our customers, it's in the same consistency, it's in the same tone towards really what we want to achieve, which is really, really great experience for our clients. So those are, you know, just some of the things, but fundamentally really aligning people to your mission and vision, and then, you know, being able to execute and course correct as you go along. Right. I totally agree. Like you can have a fantastic vision and you can even have a great process, 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 whatever you say, but if you don't get the right people, you're screwed because the wrong people will screw up your process and the right people will help you build a better one. So sometimes people get this backwards thinking of a mortgage broker right now. I'm not going to hire because I got to get my process dialed in. Well, if you find the right person, they'll actually take your ideas of a process and they will improve it significantly. And if you get the wrong person and you put them in there, they're not going to follow it anyway. I've had people that have hired like that. I've literally have built this, what I thought was a beautiful process. It's like, this thing's amazing. It's like a recipe and they don't freaking follow it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I've hired other people who you put in there and then they go, oh, what about this? Can we improve that? I see there's a friction here. And then they just continually improve it. And that's why people are actually more important because if you get the right people, they will make your processes better. They will improve it. So back to you said alignment and vision and mission. Like when you're hiring right now, what are you doing in order to try to identify that? Like, how are you trying to find those people? So for us, it's really, you know, one big lesson learned is a lot of times we hire based on the hard skills, you know, the experience they've had, they may have been in the industry for X number of years, they may have a certain technical competency. And you can get that, you can usually quantify that from a regular interview or even the resumes as you're pre-screening. And I find, you know, we used to get excited about, oh, look at this person's profile, they're amazing. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's like, oh my gosh, look at their stat sheet, like a sports exactly. athlete, Exactly. Right? Yeah. They look perfect for the roster. However, the mindset, or at least my mindset has really shifted in terms of really hiring for attitude. So we've hired folks that, for example, come from a completely different background, have little to no experience in the industry with tremendous success. And they brought in not only fresh ideas, but fresh you know, perspectives, ways of doing things, things that were transplanted from some of their background. Maybe, you know, they've had a job in a totally different industry. We've got, for example, someone that came in recently from hospitality. And you might think, well, you know, hospitality and, you know, fintech mortgages for what we do is completely different. Why you're hiring a hospitality person. Right. Um, and it turns out that that person's really been exceptional at really, you know, connecting with clients, understanding what they need, understanding concerns, diffusing if there's ever, you know, a situation or a problem that needs to be solved. So we found, you know, really hiring for that attitude and aptitude. And in third, and probably even most important is the ability of that person to learn new things, but also unlearn what they previously would have known, you know, in their industry or, or in their previous lives. Right? Yeah, that's really good. So that whole concept of hire for attitude, train, skill, I totally agree with you. And, you know, one of the things I talked to a friend of mine, he called me the other day and nine years ago, he's a programmer and he had worked for Disney and he got bought out and he was trying to figure what to do. And so I pitched him the idea of creating basically like a document collection signature platform, not unlike Finmo, right? I said, hey, we should build this thing. And this was nine years ago. He called me, he's like, hey, dude, I sold my company to Microsoft. 
he decided to go down the path of creating a chat monitoring software for online games for kids to make sure there's no bullying and porn and all the other crap. Anyways, he sold it, made a fortune. And so I was like, okay, tell me what you've learned from building and exiting a company that would be useful to me where I'm at right now. And he's like, well, a couple things. One, 90% of the things I thought I was going to do or that mattered didn't. Literally 10% of the core value of the business was all we needed to be successful. And I did a lot of other things that got me distracted. That was one thing I thought was interesting. The second is, is that when talked about people is that he would sometimes hire people at the wrong time. So there's kind of two types of people. There's builders, so startup type people, and there's operators. Startup people are okay with their job changing on a daily basis. My job looks like, hey, we're making an adjustment. We got to pivot. Fantastic. There's other people who like, look, give me a job. I want to do the same thing. I'll make it a little bit better every day. And the mistake that he said he'd make, sometimes he'd hire people a year and a half before because they were yeah. what he needed was a startup person and what he had was an operator and it was like this isn't going to work and so i think part of that whole idea of attitude and trained skill is also looking at what is their natural tendencies i got a girl that works for me who's amazing she can kill any job i put her in if i put her in one job and said do this every day she would slowly die inside and she would be gone within four months because that's just not her wiring so i'm curious you've got a much larger team than me how do you identify some of these things like how do you watch for it or how do you do that yeah and also i think just maybe to underscore that timing, the timing of your hiring and also the experience of where that person comes from background wise. If you're just building and you're in the early stages of your business, you don't have much process, you need that adaptability. And that's what we typically look for. And sometimes it's evident in the person's background, that person's you know maybe been to different industries and different jobs. We're never shy about taking on an extra challenge rather than someone that's, let's say, been in their role for you know, the last 10, 15 years, same thing, maybe progressively got a larger job title and so on. So there are some signs as well as some questions that we ask in terms of you know, really seeing that timing of the fit. Now, a lot of folks sort of have similar to that example, Scott, like let's overhire, let's say, let's find someone say that, you know, if my ambition is to go public in 10 years, let me hire someone that's done it before. But sometimes that person that's done it before also is a little bit overqualified for what you're looking for. Right, right. You might not have I feel like you're yet. talking to me specifically right now, a non-specific example of like, Scott, why is <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, so it really is. I mean, you know, there's the timing thing in terms of sort of where you are in your team. Do you have your processes down? Do you have your systems down? Then you're looking for someone that can come in, learn, and maybe improve over time. If you don't have some of those systems and processes down, you really need folks that are builders, folks that are very comfortable with ambiguity, folks that are very comfortable with making quick decisions and executing. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, totally different profiles that you're looking for. And that's what you'd look for in their experience rather than, again, get caught up in the shiny object syndrome. Someone's resume is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. They're, you know, they're 20 years ahead of us. Where I feel we like want this is just more of a coaching call for me than hopefully you guys are listening than getting value. I feel like uh, this is just a coaching. That's a good point, Ruben. My buddy who sold that company, and by the way, I told him he made a way better choice to sell a company to Microsoft than what he would have done in our space. But in any case, he said that the team you start with is not the team you end with. Because once you get that business up to a certain scale, you need reliable operators who don't want change, but there is a progression of building a business. And so I was like, oh, okay, so this is helpful. So I guess to relate this to your guys' mortgage business, find good people, right? The people are more important. And I've met some people that have no mortgage background that pick this up really quick and are amazing. And then you have other people who've been in the business for 25 years, bad attitude. They already know everything. You can't teach them anything new. And I'm like, I don't want that person. 
I want the person who's actually, you know, coachable and you can work with them. So I think that's important. And then also just think about it's good to hire ahead, but you don't need to hire so far ahead that you have somebody way overqualified and it doesn't make sense. Any other final thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So just to maybe sum it up, it really is the attitude and the aptitude. Find that person's superpower, find what they love to do. And if you can deliver on that promise, it's a win-win. They'll add tremendous value for your business and your company. And you'll add value to them in terms of getting them to where they want to be and how they want to grow career-wise. So it's really, you know, getting that alignment, obviously getting that alignment to your personal vision and values in terms of where you want to go and where you want to take your business. And, you know, a lot of times, and I'm just going to kind of come out and say it, is it's that gut feel. If you, when you get that gut feel, you know, it's right. You guys have all probably seen that in your personal relationships and your business relationships, you have that conversation and it just feels right take a chance, take a chance on people. They may not have the shiny resume. They may not have perfect qualifications you want, but they're hungry. They're willing to work hard. They're willing to learn and they just might be your best hire. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And if you guys are listening to this, I know that you guys have been scaling up Deeded and you've got amazing things happening there. So go check them out. It's the Uber Eats of getting a real estate transaction done. So check them out at deeded.ca. And Ruben, thanks again for chatting with me. Thanks again for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to me have a conversation with Nick and Reuven. Hopefully you picked up a couple nuggets you can apply to make yourself run a better mortgage business. If you are new and you're trying to figure out how the heck do I get my business going, Scott, I need a plan. I need some support mentoring. Go check out rookie2rockstar.ca. We give you a walkthrough there of exactly how we help agents succeed faster than anyone else and with amazing support. Check that out. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.